City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Isabel Stevenson, president of the American Theatre Wing, and I want to welcome you to the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located right in the heart of the city and right in the heart of the theatre. We have a very distinguished guest with us this morning, and I would like to introduce her to you and to the audience. She is a new president of the City University Graduate School and University Center. It is President Horowitz, and I would very much like to bring her up here so that you could all meet the new president here. We do honor to have you here. Thank you very much. Fall 1991 marks the 15th anniversary of the relationship between the City University Graduate Center and the American Theatre Wing. The American Theatre Wing seminars, working in the theatre, is the longest running series on CUNY TV, having started with the station's inception. It is my pleasure to welcome you here and to congratulate the American Theatre Wing for this long-running, popular, and very successful series. Thank you. The American Theatre Wing as you know, uh, has an all-year-round program. We are perhaps best known for the Tony Awards, but that's the carrot. I'm very proud of it, and I'm very proud of the people that have won the Tonys. But behind the Tony Award stands a tradition over 50 years of service to the community through the theater. And the many programs that we do throughout the year do just that. They serve the community. We have a hospital show program which brings theater to those that can't come out to it. It goes into hospitals and institutions and aid centers. We have the Saturday Theater for Children's School. Brings live theater on Saturday mornings to children in public schools. Children line up to see a live show. They're in the elementary school age and they start at a very early age to appreciate what live theater is. And then there are these seminars, which bring the very best, the most talented, the most knowledgeable people to talk about what it is to work in the theater. We also have a new program that I'm terribly excited about, and we tried it in the spring, and it's called Introduction to Broadway. And in cooperation with the producers, the Board of Education of the high schools and junior high schools, and the American Theatre Wing, we have been able to give over 6,000 tickets to junior and high school students to go to see a Broadway show in an evening and a matinee. They've gone to Grand Hotel and to Cats. 
it's, it's exciting to see this because no one has lined them up and say, come to the theater. They make their own arrangements, they sign up, they pay for the ticket, a very, very modest sum, but they do pay for it. The producers give us the tickets at a ridiculously low right, rate so that we, in turn, can take up half of the cost of it. But it means that these young people are forming the habit of going to the theater, not only enriching their lives, but seeing what it is to be in the theater and to work in the theater and come to New York. They come from Brooklyn and Queens and far Rockaway. And then we have arranged to meet with the cast after the show so they can discuss what they have seen, also to be able to see the role models that are there. And so this, I hope, will continue. We're able to do this by our contributions, by grants, and I'm very pleased to announce that the Billy Rose Foundation was able to give us a grant so we can expand this program even further in the new season. And now the seminars. I want to go right into them as soon as I can because they are so important. We do one in the performers, we do one in the play script, director, and one on the production. And today's seminar is on the performance. And we have Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, and I don't know of anyone that has had more experience in every form of the theatre than Jean. And Brendan Gill, who is a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, and I guess has been on the New Yorker magazine for almost as long as the wing is old. And he loves the theatre, and although he is a critic, he is not here as a critic. He is here because he indeed does love the theatre. And I will turn the seminar over to them, and they in turn will introduce the panelists. Jean? Right next to the empty chair is Roy Dutrice, one of the really great actors of the world. And I'm sure you've all seen him many times in films and TV. And some years ago in A Life, which was a great hit and with which I was associated, I was very honored to know you then. And it's awfully nice to have you back, Roy Dutrice. Thank you. We have another old friend of mine and of her entire family going way, way back, and that's Zimbalist. Stephanie Zimbalist. I was going to call her something quite different. I'm glad I finally got it out straight. Um, she's uh, making her Broadway debut now in a very fine play down at Lucille Lortel's Theater, The Baby Dance. And I hope you'll all go to see her because she's really terrific. Stephanie Zimbalist. <laughs> and right next to me is a young man who gave a fabulous performance in Prelude to a Kiss, but I only met him a little while ago. But uh, I like him very much, and uh, he's now in Babylon Gardens at Circle Repertory Theater. Timothy Hutton. And on my uh, far left is Hinton Battle, who is described 
uh, as I always having received uh, rave uh, reviews, that curious adjective which implies that critics, even when they approve of something, have something rather unhealthy about them. Why should they be raving? <laughs> it is an ominous adjective. In any event, rave reviews as a, both a dancer, a choreographer, and an actor, and is now playing in Miss Saigon. And next uh, is uh, Mary Louise Parker, who uh, is playing in, uh, before and gained fame in Prelude to a Kiss and is now co-starring at the Circle Repertory uh, Theater production of Babylon Gardens. And on my nearest left, uh, Teresa Wright, who has been on Broadway in Mornings at Seven, Death of a Salesman at Circle in the Square, I Never Sang for My Father, and is currently back at Circle in the Square in On Borrowed Time. Teresa Wright. Jean, do you want to begin? I'd like to tell a little story about Mr. Dutrace, if I could, because some wonderful things happened while he was playing in A Life, um, which was a one-man play. And I had a friend who said she didn't want to see it because she didn't like one-man plays. But she came, and afterwards she said it changed her life. She fell in love with him. And it made her fall in love again with her aged husband. <laughs> so, uh, and so I took her backstage to meet him, and, and uh, she said, um, uh, well, you know, he, it's really true. He makes me love my husband all over again. <laughs> so I thank you very much. Quite a heavy responsibility for you. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yes. Yeah. Um, it, it was a one-man show called Brief Lives, actually, because I yes. later did a play called yeah. A Life. Uh, but this was a one-man show called Brief, Brief, Lives. Brief Lives, I remember, which we did actually originally at the Golden Theatre in, right. in 19... Uh, have to be 19, wouldn't it? Just about. <laughs> 1967, I think. Right. And um, I, I remember <laughs> we had a party afterwards because it was being presented by David Suskind and Dan Milnick. And um, we had a party at Richard Rogers' uh, apartment because Dan Melnick was married to his daughter. And someone came in with a dripping piece of newsprint around about one o'clock in the morning and said, this is Clive Barnes' notice. And it was an absolute rave. And uh, so they said, well, we're, we're going to take a full page in the New York Sunday Times and print the whole of this review, which they did. And they said, no one knows what Clive Barnes looks like. So they printed this oval photograph of Clive Barnes and underneath it said, this man is Clive Barnes, he's the drama critic of the New York Times. He saw Brief Lives and he said, and they printed the whole of his review, and in very small print they mentioned a guy called Roy Detrees. <laughs> <laughs> and the consequence of that was we had a line at the box office the following morning asking for tickets for the Clive Barnes show. That <laughs> <laughs> was Mr. Barnes' dance. <laughs> Now that, was, that was extraordinary because at that time you were playing a very old man, John Aubrey, who had written the famous collection right. of odds and ends called Brief Lives. And uh, it, I suppose, was the most cluttered stage that there has ever been in history. A wonderful woman, uh, yeah. uh, Mr. Yes, we had, we had over 5,000 antiquities um, yes. of the period, you know, and some of them were extremely old. We were very lucky because a friend of mine uh, owned a house in England called Canons Ashby, where John Aubrey had stayed. It had originally been the home of the Dryden family, and John Dryden was a great friend of uh, John Aubrey's. So I was actually using P. 
pewter tankards and things like that on stage, which John Orby himself had used in, I should think, around about 1640. Mm -hmm. And we had tremendous amount of props on stage. It was a, a wonderful setting. By, we mentioned earlier, Brendan, you know, um, Julia Trevelyan Omen. Yeah. Wonderful set. It's filled with the brim. You were hopping about there, pretending to be very old, the most nimble old man that yeah, ever right. was at yeah. that time. <laughs> it was an extraordinary thing. Even taking advantage of the fireplace on stage. Is that yes, we had a real fire on stage. Right. In fact, he used to do all sorts of nasty things on stage. I even used to use a chamber pot on stage. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, rather discreetly behind them. <laughs> but then I did throw the contents out of the mullion windows, I remember. Yeah. That was a big cultural breakthrough for its day. <laughs> remember when Fanula Flanagan didn't use the chamber pot discreetly? I know, I saw that, yes. She was quite wonderful. Yeah. Now, in your case... She used a chamber pot like no one else I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah, something. <laughs> you know, that wonderful setting got an awful lot of the notices also. Some of them started with it and ended with it, setting how marvelous That's it right. was, remember? Yes. That was the star of the show, the really. The star anyway. of the show, yeah. I had, we had bad luck over that show because um, we, um, uh, 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 there was a man called Jules Irving who was running the oh, Lincoln yes. Center. And he came in, I think, at the end of the second week and asked us if we would like to transfer to the small theatre under the Vivian Beaumont, where, with his subscribers, we could probably play for about six months. And um, so Suskind decided this was the thing to do. It was a very <coughs> prestigious thing to do. And so we decided to do it. So we closed at the Golden. In those days, there was a, a line of shows waiting to come in. The theatre was grabbed immediately. And we moved up to Lincoln Centre, where we rehearsed for, I think, five days with all our bits and pieces. And um, on the day we were due to open, American Actors Equity held a meeting and decided no alien actor was going to play in their national theater. Oh. And I never opened. So for that reason, I did come back for the show in 1974 at the Booth Theater, right. where it did run for right. quite a long time. Yes. And but thank Ellen you for your kind memories of that. <laughs> and Ellen Brandt produced it. Ellen Brandt, that's right. Yes. Yes. For Stephanie, it's a very different kind of setting that you have in your play now because it's a, it's a, it's a mobile home, uh, a trailer uh, that uh, is not filled with antiquities of any kind. Well, the, this, is our, uh, this is our fourth incarnation, our fourth juncture with the play, and every time we do it, we started in Pasadena, Pasadena Playhouse, uh, February 9th, 1990. We did in Pasadena two productions in Williamstown, Long Wharf, and now New York, and every theater is a different size, different shape. The audience is different. The thrust is different. And it changes the play totally. So we finally got back on our proscenium stage, which we love, all of us. It's the same five cast members from day one. And it just changes the play totally. Mm -hmm. It just makes it a completely different play. and you can It's a very constricted uh, space for you to have to work in. With <laughs> it is, except, you know, when you, you, you get used to it, it seems very big. It's that, yes. that song, Tiny Room. <laughs> you know, it seems very large. <laughs> it also has a, a lavatory on stage or a toilet on stage. <laughs> yes. but is this going to be the pattern of the <laughs> life? <laughs> I was just going to ask that. Can you get away from that? <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing how much uh, space can change a play. When we were doing Prelude last year, we were at the, we were off Broadway at Circle Rep, and then moved to Helen Hayes, and the feeling just changed completely. And mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden, there wasn't this intimate participation. Really, suddenly the the the, uh, the play had to be rethought, and nobody was anticipating that. And the audiences are always different as a consequence of the different shape of things, which I would think would be a great hardship when, when you move from one, one to another. 
Are you happy with the stage that you're working on now? I am. On yeah. Time? Yeah. Yes, I am. I think they've done a marvelous job with the set of making Excellent. it, yes. uh, making it into sections and into parts of the room instead of having that long space. Yeah, it's uh, a very yeah. difficult uh, space. It's I the think most it's difficult. Beautifully done, and the lighting I think makes it uh, uh, further uh, divides it into. Sections almost like a movie, I would think. Yeah. I'd love to see it because I think the lighting right. is marvelous. That's <laughs> <laughs> have to be in two places. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. the plays I've seen in that space, your play that you're in is the best staged play I've ever seen in that space, oh, and oh. you're wonderful in it. You're just magnificent. Oh, nice. yeah. Thank you. I was, I was just going to say that myself. Great review. Great review. Well done. Well done. Particularly about the setting, which is extraordinary yeah. for that theater. In, in Babylon uh, Gardens, I was puzzled by the title. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it's, um, it's a reference to a scene in the play where um, Tim's character is referring to this homeless person on the street, and we're talking about her, and she's sort of this mysterious person at that point, and he says, um, should I give this away? That's like our best okay. joke. So we well. <laughs> <laughs> Spell it out. Spell it. They only just have. So. Anyway, and um, he says she says she's from Jamaica, and he thinks she's this homeless person, and she's from Jamaica, and finally we deduce that what she means is Jamaica Queens. Mm -hmm. So I say to him, it's much funnier when you see it. He <laughs> <laughs> like laughs. Yes, because the way I react. <laughs> yeah, do it for us. <laughs> and, um, yes, so, and then I say to him, um, if, if she told you uh, she was from Babylon, you'd have asked her about the Hanging Garden. So mm -hmm. it's a very sort of yeah. topical, specific to New York. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because the play is very much about New York, and it's a, it's a, what is called a dark uh, play. Because the, what that it's used to dark. be simply yeah. was it, it was it's serious. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's facing something desperately serious about yeah. New York. And so, but nowadays it takes courage to do that. Well, it's um, I can definitely sense at times that people don't <laughs> didn't realize quite how bleak. Mm -hmm. An evening they would be attending. <laughs> they seem a well, it's very much this problem of, tr of truth telling. Isn't that the same thing with, with you? The audience is really uh, moved and, and in a desperate plight itself because it, to tell the truth in a play like yours, you can't have a happy ending. I'm always intrigued in the stages of our play that this discovering that an audience as a group has a morality that individuals don't have. An audience will demand uh, knots to be tied or untied, loose ends to be tied up. They will demand, you know, resolutions in a, in a play. Whereas if they get home and get in the shower, they realize that they would do exactly the same thing as the character hmm. once they get home. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. You feel that your audience uh, leaves the theater puzzled or troubled in that sense? A lot of sense? times, yeah. Yeah, I do, I do feel, uh, I don't know puzzled in a good way it's mm -hmm. I how do you it. know about that do they come backstage and tell you <laughs> well our, our our play is you know it ends i know in the play like, well i like it yeah. lots too <laughs> anyway uh there are times when people come they will say well why did your character do this or why did joel's character do this or why did linda's character do this or richard's really or, oh yeah and i'll 
our play, in a funny sort of way, it, the, the, the couple that I play, it challenges what you don't like about yourself. Really? Yeah, yeah, it shoots an arrow at each, at an unattractive part of each of us that we don't want to admit to. And so, as a, as a whole, the audience will say, oh, no, 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 but you get home and you have dinner and have a drink or whatever, and you say, gee, I might, I might do the same thing myself. Well, you're thinking very deeply, it seems to me, about the character and about the reactions. In your, in your first reading of the play, did you recognize that, or did that come to you through the evolution of rehearsals and, and uh, working? It's it's a dance. It's called the baby dance because it is a dance, mm -hmm. and the and the board is it, it it tended. It's been through a few rewrites, and so it tended to be skewed a little bit toward toward the poor Louisiana couple, in terms of the writing. So it it came about through the playing and the writing of at least making the dance floor even. Mm -hmm. So everybody had a fighting chance of. We ought, to, we ought nice to mention the name of the, of the authors. The Jane author? Anderson, mm. wonderful player. And, and your author? Uh, Timothy Mason. Mm -hmm. Now, are they both young? How old is... She's small. <laughs> <laughs> She's very young. She's young, very young. And yeah. what about your author? It's really hard to tell. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, he's young. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know he's young, but I don't know how. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. It depends thing, on how old we are. It depends on how young they are. <laughs> it's not a bad thing to leave an audience going out and asking themselves questions. That's right. No. Uh, we don't have answers in life, certainly, uh, every day to every problem. No, there are it's good, good to think about it and, and say, what would I do? And then maybe it might make you more sympathetic to somebody else who has a like problem. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also important that in New York these days people are always saying you can't have serious subjects in the yeah. theater, you know, that we're so corrupted by other media that we all want happy endings. And here's two plays that are in deadly earnest and are facing, confronting two of our biggest problems we can have. And, and uh, they are works of art, serious works of art. That's tremendous. I think, I think your play has a happy ending. You're not the only one that thinks so. Well, yeah. it just yeah. seemed to me that it meant in nine months they'd have another baby. That's right. That's right. But I'm one of the people that thought Taxi Driver, the movie, was a hopeful movie, <laughs> <Okay>. so <laughs> I did. I thought it was about a hero. I'm <laughs> because he started growing his hair back. <laughs> I think anyone that comes to see our play, The Homecoming, realizes it's not written by Beatrix Potter. <laughs> it's, um, it's a very tough play. It's, yeah. um, it's very hard that the, the, the language is not particularly shocking as much as the situation. In fact, Frank Rich quite rightly said, I think in his review, that the language is very reminiscent of, of Cockney sort of musical slang, which it is. And it's not the language that says shocking, it, it's, it's a situation on the relationship of the characters. I remember, because when the play was first written, we had an office in England called the Lord Chamberlain, uh, yes. appointed by the Queen, who, um, he, this man decided, he was a censor for, for the uh, West End Theatre. And I remember Pinter telling me he had problems with the play originally because um, there was one thing, the line that the Lord Chamberlain objected to and Pinter went to see him, and it was something about uh, if they come over to Savoy for a quiet poke. And the, he said, no, I can't possibly have it. No, no, I won't accept poke. <laughs> so Pinter said, well, what do you accept? He said, well, he said, we will accept bunk up. 
That's absolutely disgusting, Bunker. When we first read this play, we thought at least 85% of it would have to be cut. But after mature consideration, Pinter said, Bunker's fine. We had problems. In fact, I did the last show that the Lord Chamberlain never wielded his blue pencil over. It was a show uh, which we did the, with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and it was written by Paddy Chayefsky called The Latent Heterosexual. That's a wonderful Oh, yeah. It's a wonderful play. Yes, it was never done on I know. Right? I don't know why. It was done on, in America by, by Zero Mostel, yeah. and I was playing the same part in America, in, in England. And the character was um, a junkie, homosexual poet. Apart from that, he was fairly normal. And he, um, he writes his best-selling novel. And Warner Brothers buy it for some fantastic amount of money, and it all takes place in a tax consultant's office. And they're trying to work out how he's going to get the maximum tax deduction. And the idea, they suggest, this very fey man, is that he should get married and have a joint declaration. Well, the idea of marrying a woman appalled him. But then they have another idea. They, they have this high-priced whore on their books, and they produce her, and suggest they should get married purely as a business arrangement. Well, she's so beautiful, he falls in love with her. He has a speech, which our Lord Chamberlain objected to. Uh, and, and the conditions on which the, under which they were going to live together. And one of the lines which the Lord Chamberlain objected to was, uh, 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 during your menstrual period, Miss Van Damme, you'll simply stay out of the house altogether. I don't want to find your half-filled box of tampons behind the plumbing in the john. So we went along to see him, Paddy Chayefsky and uh, uh, Trevor Nunn and, uh, and myself and Terry Hams. And, um, well, him turned out to be a them. There was two of them. Why they were always ex-military types, I have no idea, who never went to the theatre and knew nothing about anything theatrical. But they always were in charge of the theatre. And we went to see them, there were two, this rather elderly colonel type and a very young sort of second lieutenant. And the colonel piped up and said, No, you're not having all this damn chat, he said, about menstrual periods. <laughs> Did you realise some little girl sitting there, age 15, you know, with her aunt, just starting? Damn embarrassing to talk about men menstrual periods. So Paddy Chayefsky said, he said, but we mean, that's what we mean, we mean menstrual periods. So he said, I'm not having menstrual periods. <laughs> As he finished with <laughs> And then Paddy Chayefsky had an inspiration. He said, um, he said, well, would you accept uh, lunar weakness? <laughs> he said, yes, 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 absolutely. Yes, we, we accept lunar weakness. So then we came to the second half of the line, which was half-filled boxes of tampons. You know, no, 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 chat about tampons and menstruation. Damn it, that little girl, age 15, still sitting there with her arm. Damn embarrassing. So we said, but we do mean, I, we had, don't have any other suggestion. Then the young man piped off. He said, I, I tell you what. He said, I have noticed, <laughs> I have noticed, in ladies' toilets, how we'd notice that, I don't know. <laughs> in, in ladies' toilets, they sometimes have this little placard which says, uh, place your objet d'art in here. <laughs> <laughs> the horror struck says, is that what you're suggesting, objet d'art? You say, I think so, Cyril, don't you, objet d'art? And Cyril said, yes, yes, absolutely splendid, yes. We accept objet d'art. <laughs> so now from an ordinary line, we had a line which brought the house down every <laughs> <laughs> Which was something like, uh, during your lunar weakness, Miss Van Damme, you must simply stay out the house altogether. I don't want to find your object. <laughs> <laughs> and this idiot is in charge of the West End Theatre. Stephanie, your worst fears are being confirmed. <laughs> I'd like to see this play. I would very much. <laughs> well, later on, there's a situation where, actually, at Thanksgiving, his, his wife rapes him in his library. 
<laughs> could have been written by Pinter, actually. I'm going to save that for the next part. Oh, okay. uh, Ms. Hinton is just sitting there I'm enjoying sorry. it. I'm enjoying it. I know. That's not what you're here for. <laughs> you represent entertainment. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the you. musical, yeah. I guess, uh, pop opera best for Miss Saigon. And it uh, ends on a sad note as well. Um, so I think maybe it's time for sad notes to be in this year. No, but... Um, God, I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of preparation did you have to do? For this show, boy, uh, this is the first show I've done on Broadway where I'm not dancing. I'm just mm -hmm. acting and singing. And, uh, and also doing a pop opera where there's, there's really nothing is spoken. It's all sung and trying to <coughs> convey, convey everything through the song, which is very difficult because a lot of times where the notes go, emotionally, you don't go. So it's, it's trying to match, you're trying to match yourself up to the music and make it come alive. Um, I have an uh, acting coach who's really great, Alan Savage, who came in and worked with me, along with the director, and um, gave me the confidence to really put these two together and uh, make it come alive uh, for myself. So, I, and every night before the show, I do a little preparation to get myself ready for it. I take like... Uh, put on loud music and put on candles and turn all the lights out <laughs> don't let anybody in. But uh, so I kind of get myself geared up for it, yeah. yeah. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I, I isolate do. myself yeah. pretty much, I really do. Because uh, my big song in the second act is uh, about uh, children, yeah. the Vietnamese children that have been left behind from the, the war and uh, I'm pleading uh, for the Americans, now we're back in America to help and uh, get these kids back with their father or donate money any way they can. So uh, a lot of times emotionally, that's, it's very hard to do emotionally and to sing it and still walk off the stage with a, some semblance of a voice. Uh, it's very hard. So I usually take a minute, more than a minute before the show, for that number and just kind of cool out with the loud music, actually, in my room, yeah. Anybody else have trouble with warming up for their shows? I'd love to hear what they do. <laughs> did you did you study for the part, or other than they being helped by the director, did you do, do, do any uh, special kind of uh, studying? I did a little research. I talked with a lot of guys that were there. They were actually in Vietnam. Uh, a lot of uh, Marines that were there. A lot of Marines that were doing the job that I am doing, which was at the embassy. Did you audition uh, for it? Yeah, I auditioned for it, and I didn't want it at first. I didn't. I wasn't able to take it. That's always a way to get them. <laughs> right. I think it was my attitude. I don't want it. Get him, get him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my first audition uh, was about two years ago now, and, uh, and then all the controversy happened with the show, and it's not coming in. So it got dropped. I moved out to LA. You auditioned so in New York. In New York, mm -hmm. and I was doing another show. I was doing Stardust at the time. We were in rehearsals, so. Um, once that happened, the show wasn't going to happen. I moved out to L.A. and I started doing, uh, working on a series and choreographing a series. Then I get this call uh, a year later. Look, um, they're having auditions. They want you to come in. Do you still have the music? A year later, no, I don't have the music and I can't come, you know. So my agent was screaming at me, you got to come, you got to come. I said, okay, fine, I'll come. I told him I'll be there. It was on a, it was on a Saturday. The auditions were on a Saturday and I was in L.A. So I said, I'll fly out Friday. I'll miss the taping. I won't choreograph that number. I'll get on the plane and I'll fly out Friday and come to the audition. I'll be there. 
So Saturday <laughs> came. I'm still in L.A. <laughs> working. I get an irate phone call Monday morning. Where the hell are you? Where were you? I said, well, what did you want me to do? So um, I didn't make it. And uh, I figured, great, the job is taken. I don't have to worry about it. Um, I, get a, <laughs> I get a call two weeks later. Uh, they're flying uh, the casting director and the musical director out to L.A. Learn the songs. <laughs> They'll be there tomorrow. So I had a day to get the song together. Um, and We Doy is a very hard song, and it's very rangy. And I get this music, and the notes on the music, and the words, it looks like somebody you know, was in a dark corner, and they, they wrote it all out. So we're in this room trying to figure this thing out. So I go in, and I, I sing the song. I, uh, they said it was good. They liked it. And they said, well, either we're going to fly you to LA, uh, to London, sorry, or we're going to fly you to New York because Cameron wants to see you. So I said, well, you know, I really get sick when I come to New York, so London's probably a better place for you to fly me. Didn't work, didn't work. So they flew me into New York, um, and I sang. The first show I did when I did Broadway was uh, The Wiz at the Majestic Theater, and I had to audition on that stage. So it was like, it was really great feeling being back there. So I go in and I sing the song, and it gets real quiet. I'm on the stage, and it's all pitch black out in the house. Real quiet, don't hear anything, and then all of a sudden I look in the wing, they're all standing in the wings. Tss, tss, come over here. So I walk over and say, Do you want this job or don't you? <laughs> and that's how it happened. <laughs> Obviously, you said you wanted it. Yeah. And I, I was so shocked that they asked me like that. I was like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, You sure? No, I said, No, really, I'm really excited. It's like, strange way of showing, you know? No, really, yeah. So that's, uh, and I kind of floated home, floated back to the hotel after that. It was, uh, and that's, that's how it started. I'm glad that you yeah, wanted the job. Nice. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Did you have to fight your way for a job? Always. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know about fight, but I did um, Prelude in Berkeley, in California. And then um, they kept saying, you know, uh, we're going to do it on Broadway. And I, I was on the phone every day. I just wanted to do it again. I mean, I would have done it in Hoboken. I mean, you know. <laughs> and um, they, they kept saying, you know, we really like you, but you're just not famous enough. And they're interested in people, you know, like, I don't know who it was then, somebody like Punky Brewster. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and um, they said, you know, but just hang in there. Maybe they'll let you be an understudy or something. I don't want to be an understudy. And then it turns out, I guess about a year later, Tanya Berezin decided to do it at Circle, to do it off-Broadway first, and then to do it um, on Broadway. So I auditioned again uh, there to make sure everybody was okay with it. And then I got it. And then they didn't make me re-audition again for... Um, Broadway, probably because there wasn't time to re-rehearse somebody. <laughs> I'm sure they would have. They could have. But how are the audiences? How did they differ? And how did you learn to adjust to the Broadway audience from the downtown audience? Well, it was sort of. It was kind of sad in a way because on Broadway, at first they felt so far away. Mm -hmm. In Circle Rep, they're just right there. Sure. And on Broadway, suddenly they were a thing, and they were far away. But as you know, as we adjusted to it, um, it felt it felt just as intimate. Mm -hmm. By the end, it was just it, initially it was kind of a 
a shock. Were the reactions from the audience the same or as? I, I think they stayed pretty consistent, yeah, with that, with that show. I think they stayed pretty much. Did you speak up when you got on in the Broadway theater? <laughs> I, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, you have to. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a huge, you know, huge difference. Well, it's much bigger than off-Broadway. Yeah, it is. And I very often go to a Broadway theater and the, the players come from off-Broadway and I, sitting in the eighth row, I can't hear a word. They just seem to be playing into a microphone or thinking they are, or playing in a very small space. Isn't so, you yeah. play the Muni, haven't you? Have you play, ever played no. the Muni? No, I haven't. 11,000 seats yes. or something? I've played it twice. <laughs> and it's, uh, Did it, you? Yeah, in the summertime, you come out on stage and it's, it's daylight at 8 o'clock. <laughs> So unlike the theater, you come out on stage and you see 11,000 people sure, yeah. right there. <gasps> <laughs> and I was doing what I never belonged. I was tap dancing <laughs> with Tommy Toon. I had no business being up there, but I was having a ball. But it was, we had done it for two weeks in Dallas and the lights, they what said, was show? my one and only. Oh. And they pushed me out on stage in front of 11,000 people. Ten. Start tap dancing, <laughs> and you can see everyone. You can see this is the great. You can sit. You see people fanning themselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! I'd much rather have a dark theater. <laughs> but could you project for eleven thousand? Eleven thousand? Probably not without a microphone. It goes all the way up the hill in Forest Park in St. Louis, and I don't. I don't know, but it's it's. Uh, were, you, were you mic'd? Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. Where did you train for the theater? Well, I trained at a school in New York. I studied in New York and I studied in Los Angeles. And I, I like to sing for my own pleasure. Um, so I, I, studied, I studied classical voice just because, just for fun, not for, I don't want to be an opera singer, but just something to enrich everything, you know, just because I like to do it. I like to go to the opera and stuff. That's how I met her. She, she uh, studied with my old friend, Natasha Bodania, right. uh, who was a star at the Met when I did publicity for the Met. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> She's a good teacher. Isn't She's she? a wonderful teacher. Yeah. I should start studying with her soon, as soon as yeah. I get my voice back. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy, where did you study? I went to a school called School of the Arts in Berkeley, Northern California. Uh, uh, originally to play music and somehow <laughs> went down the wrong corridor. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were uh, auditions for uh, the Bacchae, Euripides, and uh, I was required to audition, so I did and I got the part of Dionysus and panicked because <laughs> <laughs> I had never done it before. And then from that day on I decided to shift everything towards drama in that school. That was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I asked is because we were talking about the difference in working in small theaters and large theaters, that uh, obviously a performer has to know what they need to adjust to that, both in, in size of, of, of their performance, performance and as well as their voice. And you in, in England have much more of an opportunity to uh, do that because there are so many 
theatres available to you. <coughs> well, also, the, the English actor is very lucky, I think, because he, he uh, has a thing called repertory, mm -hmm. which every small town, um, and the larger towns have two or three, they have repertory companies where they do anything from weekly repertory, doing a different play every week, sometimes it's fortnightly repertory every two weeks, or monthly repertory, the, the rather better one. So an actor, when he leaves his drama school and goes into repertory, he, during the course of a year, if he goes into a small repertory company, he can do 52 plays. And he will do everything ranging from, you know, the Greeks, Lysistrata, right through medieval mystery plays, Shakespeare, uh, Restoration comedy, you know, Victorian melodrama, and modern plays. And so he has a tremendous um, chance to, to verse himself in all kinds of styles. So that when he's given a play, he invariably knows what sort of style to play it in, you know. Uh, and I think that helps. The English saves actors, a lot of time. Yes, saves a lot of time, yeah. Right. Is it still I'll like start, that? I'm sorry. Is it still like that in England? Yes, I think so. I mean, the, the, the repertory system still seems to hang on in England. I mean, perhaps it's not quite as... Uh, uh, not quite as... as uh, the, the, during the war, there was a tremendous surge of repertory because it was the only kind of entertainment they had. Then after the war, it continued for about 15, 20 years. But probably it's from the 70s onwards, there hasn't been quite as much repertory. Although all the big towns still have them. I'd like to go there and, and be at the Repertory Theatre and, and have them go 52 weeks with a different play every week. I think that would be wonderful. That is great. We've you, never had anything like that. Did you start in the Repertory Theatre in a small town, or where did you start? Did I? No, I, 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 started in a, I started acting in a German prison of war camp. Hmm. Um, simply because I was a, a schoolboy when the Germans invaded my home, and, um, which was in uh, Les Îles de la Manche, the Channel Islands, and, and near the coast of France. And when France and Germany so, and um, Belgium and Holland were overrun, we knew it was our turn next. I managed to escape on the third night of the occupation. I got across to England, and I was only 14, and I stopped my age on, and eventually managed, after a series of ventures, managed to get into the Royal Air Force. And then after two years of flying with them, I got shot down at the beginning of 1942. And finding myself in a German prison war camp where, alas, we didn't have real women, but we did try to entertain ourselves with theatricals. And we had a, a kind of professional repertory company in the first camp I was in because there were like 3,000 men and about 15 of those had been professional actors. So we formed our own repertory company. I played female parts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, I graduated to Mayo Pass, for which my wife has been eternally grateful. <laughs> and um, yes, I even played Portia in the Merchant of Venice, actually. But I, 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 you know, so that's how I started. And I, then I, whilst I was there, I read in a German publication, which occasionally printed a, a, a piece of genuine news, that Sir Alexander Corder, the film director, had granted scholarships for ex-service men and women to go to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art after the war. And I applied for one of these through the Red Cross, and I went back after the war and auditioned and was awarded a scholarship. And then I was on leave in Manchester from the RAF, and uh, I went to see the Manchester Referee Company, and the proprietor there offered me a job. And so I decided to be a professional right away. I never went, I never had any formal training, alas, which I've often regretted. But then I've had a lot of experience, you know, in, in as much as I, I did. I did over 500 different plays in repertory. Mm. Yes. And I directed over 300 of them. Oh, my goodness. You know, the American Theatre Wing, I'm sorry, the, I was wonderful. just going to say that the American Theatre Wing had a school for returning veterans as well. Oh, really? Yes, I and, and uh, the government 
considered sponsored. that part. They sponsored yeah. and considered it part of a credit course. Sure. Yeah. And it was for professionals only that would come back and retool their trade. And almost every big name in the theater contributed their talents oh, to really? it. Which actually is, these seminars grow out of that. The school closed at the end when there was a decrease in students. And I realized that there wasn't an area in which people could discuss all phases of mm. the theater and a crossover in the theater as well. And so this is the next best thing, and I seem to think it's even better. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems as if your voice, you know, had a classic training and all that. You did all, all that just from one play to the next. Well, I, I did nine years with the Royal Shakespeare Company, so I suppose one yes. gets a bit used to classical work during no, that. But you um, had the voice to begin with. Yeah. It's very strange, actually, because I have had two throat operations. I'm not, nothing. I was playing Pierre Gint down at Chichester, and our dear director decided that in the storm scene, when I had this very long soliloquy, he would have like six speakers in the house blazing out with the thunder and waves and all the rest of it. And I lost my voice before the first night, and I carried on for the whole season. And it was dreadful, and you know, it was croaking away. And then on the last night of the season, there was a, a doctor there waiting for me, and they whipped me up to the London clinic. I said, what's all this about? He said, well, your vocal cords are so swollen, you've got so many calluses and things on them that they're actually touching. And so I went in, I had this operation, and it's been just as strong as ever since. Mm -hmm. I've had that done twice. So if ever you have these nodules on your throat, as an actor, don't worry about it. They, they can chop them off very easily. Teresa, with all I know about you and everything you've done, I don't know what, where you started, where you started from. Where, where I started from? I started in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, and a public speaking teacher there um, got me a working scholarship at something called the Wharf Theatre in Provincetown. Uh, and um, there, uh, Edith Skinner, who taught at the Carnegie Tech, um, ran a theater school there. So uh, in the morning, I'd play, I'd study at the theater school. She had some marvelous teachers come and work with us there. And then I got to play all the children's parts in the, in plays, if there was a child's part, with the professional actors. And while there, I met. Uh, Dora Mirandi, a character actress, mm -hmm. and uh, said, come see her in New York. She went back to New York and was, got a job in our town. Uh, I went to see her, and she was dressing with Martha Scott, and they were looking for an understudy, I mean a replacement for Martha then. And uh, uh, Martha said, apparently when I left, um, that girl is Emily. And she, Dora said, yes, but she's still in high school. So anyway, Dorothy McGuire got the job, and uh, a year later, when I got out of, when I graduated from high school, I came into New York, and that time they were looking for a rep an understudy for Dorothy because Martha had gone to do the play, I mean the movie, and uh, that's how I got started. And uh, then I guess school? I was taught Columbia High School in Maplewood, New Jersey. Ah, so right across the river. Right across the river. Mm -hmm. But it's a long way away. Yeah. <laughs> in those days, it was a long way away. Yeah. I mean, the car fare, which was not very much, <laughs> it was too much for me to get to New York. So. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, that's how I started. And I guess, thinking of teachers, I think my next teachers were Howard Lindsay and Bertane Windus in Life with Father. Mm -hmm. Howard used to call me in the dressing room and give me little lectures about the scene and so on. You're wonderful. <laughs> You're great. 
It was so. still a quick start. <laughs> I was lucky. Yes, I was very lucky. And you, do you have anything particular that um, you'd like to talk about? Like your quick start. My dog. Do you have many replacements in the show? Um, we've had a couple of guys leave for other shows, actually. Uh, one of the guys, Chris, left for Nick and Nora. Mm -hmm. who's now, I think they're in previews now. Um, uh, another one of uh, Billy Porter's leaving to go do Five Guys Named Mo. Um, and I think that's it so far. Two of the guys have left to, to do other things. And how do you keep the show up when that happens? Do you do... Uh, um, well, the show, I mean, it's... Um, there's so many things going on, and everybody has so many characters going on in the show, you know, because uh, we're all... Like the opening scene, we're in a bar, and everybody's drunk, and we're being womanizers and throwing these beautiful women all over. I love that part of the show. We just throw them all over the place. You're sexually but harassing women? No, no, we don't do that. We don't say anything about sodas or anything. In the, no. No, but we're very kind to the women, actually. Where did you study dancing? But, uh, where did you study dancing? Where did I study dance? I, studied, I started with School of American Ballet and uh, Jones and Haywood Ballet in Washington. And I wanted to be in New York City Ballet, and Balanchine thought I was a little too short. So I said, to you, and I went on to do something else. <laughs> no, but I, I wanted to be in his company. I loved his work, but uh, it didn't work out, but it worked out in another way. Balanchine himself being this tall. I know. <laughs> no, he's great. I love his, love his work. Yeah, what about singing? Singing, I studied with a woman named Barbara Christopher, who's an opera singer here in New York, who I think... She may be singing now with the, uh, with the Met, I'm not sure. But at one time she was there. I don't know if she was actually in the... Do you still take lessons? Yeah, in fact, that's why I was a little late today. <laughs> I was coming from acting class <laughs> from oh, Alan, Alan Savage. I was take, coming from class uh, and got caught in traffic trying to get here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, all the time, still going. How much extra work do you do? You're all working, which yeah. is so nice. Yeah. Uh, do you take classes and anything as, as well as what you're doing? I think that's a wonderful thing about American actors, that they do do that. I mean, we're terribly lazy in England. I mean, and it's very strange, because if you're... I think I mean, if, about the English, I think differently. I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, if you're a musician, if you're a dancer, if you're a singer, I mean, you practice all the time. Even musicians who are giving concerts, I mean, practice daily. But the actor doesn't do that, not in England anyway. I don't know what they do but here. You have that but, I mean, if they're, they're, they're hopefully they're working, and when they're not working, they're serving in Woolworths or something. But I mean, <laughs> most of the time, they don't practice their art apart when they're actually doing it. But you have the repertory, which you, you get to do all those, you know, you get to do oh, so sure. much. Yeah, that's there. true, yeah. But I mean, the, the, the more successful actors that are playing in the West End or in, you know, in, in, in number one theatre, they, the, the, they will do just that job, but they don't practice during the daytime or get warmed up for the show at night as, act, as uh, singers and musicians do and dancers. That's does, does everybody here, uh, as actors, warm up for the show at night? <coughs> no. <laughs> That's yours with mine, is it? Timothy, do you? I do some, it depends on how I feel. I mean, if, if, I, if I feel that my voice is a little bit weak on that particular day, then I will. I will do something to try to, to get it back. Um, and I did some voice work while we were in rehearsals. Um, so it depends. I mean, sometimes not at all. I mean, I'll be reading the paper right up until places, 
<laughs> and you can go on cold. Pardon? And you go on cold. Yes. A couple of the English companies here held classes in discipline before the show. And it was so popular that some of the Americans who were right next door began coming into it. Really? And uh, it, it was really a, a, a wonderful thing to see. They held it two or three times a, a week. What, what, what English company? Yes, and I'm trying to think of which one it was. It was the, the first one of the Dickens show, the big Dickens thing. Oh, oh, it must have been the Royal Shakespeare Company then, yes. Yes. Um, they came out. The Nicholas, um, Nicholas Nickleby. That's right, Nicholas mm. Nickleby. Mm -hmm. And, and it, was well, it was a very big ensemble piece. Oh. I suppose yes. you certainly needed a certain amount of discipline for that, obviously. Mm. Um, but no, it, that, that amazes me. I always thought there was tremendous lack of discipline in the English letter. Mm -hmm. well, it just it's funny when you study, you study voice, you know, in school or whatever, all speech, and you lie there on the floor for hours on end doing mom and blah, 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 and all these things. And it, you don't know why you're doing it, and then you'll have a moment in a play where you figure out, oh, that's why we did that. That's mm -hmm. what they were talking about, mm -hmm. about pushing the voice there so that you don't hurt. Oh, I get it. And it takes a job to get it, you know. It takes a job to. But I think that's why there is. It is so important to have the knowledge of what to do. You might not be using it right away, mm -hmm. but at some point something clicks, and you remember what it is to overcome that. Also, I suppose that's the difference between a professional and an amateur, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That uh, a professional will maintain a certain standard all the time. An amateur can be brilliant one night and dreadful the next. But the the professional, hopefully, because of technique and so on. Hey, but it's, it's always difficult, I think, to, to, in fact, it's impossible to reproduce the, the definitive performance. There's a, a story that Robert Lang, the actor, told me when he was playing Brabantio in, in uh, Olivier's Othello. And um, one night, Larry Olivier really took off, as Michel Sandeni, the French director, would have said, the bird had flown. <laughs> and he was like hovering over the stage, giving this fantastic performance of Othello. And all the company gathered in the wings. And at the curtain call, when the curtain came down, um, Robert Lang said to Larry, uh, well done, Larry. And Larry went, what? And went to the dressing room and slammed the door. So Robert thought, what the heck's the matter with him? So he banged on the door, and Olivia said, come in. He said, what's the matter with you, Larry? He said, it was a wonderful performance tonight. Olivia said, I know it was, but I don't know how the bloody hell I did it. That's <laughs> <laughs> why you do it again. Yeah, yeah. Right. No button you can press for performance A. Right. Roy and I worked together many years ago, and when we worked together, you told me about this unique economic arrangement that you and your family have, which I have, I've never heard anywhere else, and I don't know if you still do it. No, we don't now, because they've all flown the coop, oh. you know, they're, they're, they're all, uh, I had three daughters, um, and they were all actresses, and my wife was an actress, and I wasn't an actress, no, I was an actor, <laughs> uh, and um, we had a company, that's all, and we used to, any, anybody <coughs> earned anything, put it in the company coffers, and whatever we needed, we took out. You know, it was that simple, actually. Yeah. It, it was true communism, I suppose. <laughs> but in fact, uh, no, all the girls... Uh, you see, I had my middle daughter, Karen, uh, she did a lot of films for Disney. She was the little girl in, in Mary Poppins, you know, many, oh. many moons ago. Mm -hmm. And um, so they, they were all working, and, and uh, Michelle, my eldest daughter, did a lot of television. But then my wife was working, so yes, we used to pull the family coffers, then mm -hmm. take out whatever we wanted. Well, there's a tradition like a in, in uh, newspaper interviews and everything, actors are always saying that they dread their children going into such a terrible thing, the suffering, the anguish, and all that. And then again and again, it turns out that acting in families goes on generation after generation. Yes. So there's a lot of yes. theater right here, for example. Yes. But, but uh, you also 
uh, from a theatrical family? Uh, no, a lot of wishers. Uh, my mother, <laughs> yeah. she wanted to be in the theater and uh, became a, a mom and a housewife instead. Mm -hmm. So, and what about the Parker family? No. You uh, the only one? My sister, mm -hmm. but my parents. No. <laughs> <laughs> in Maplewood, New Jersey, what was going on? All I know is that my father, when he lived in New York, I'm a, about a fourth generation New Yorker, really. And uh, my father once played Little Eva. He had long golden curls. <laughs> but outside of that, I don't know anybody who, yeah. who in my family who ever acted. Mm -hmm. What about you? We're about to have to break, so we're going to leave this part of, of how about you for when we come back um, and there will be questions from the audience and, and uh, I'm sure there's going to be an awful lot of them and so once more you're going to be subject to all of the things that we want to know about what it's like to work in the theater. You're all very good and thank you very much and don't go away you can stand up and stretch and we'll come right back again and continue this. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Well, this seminar is on the performance, and we have a wonderful group of performers here. We are discussing what it is to work in the theatre. And I think we left off with Timothy. Did we? Yeah. Timothy Hutton. Yeah. Where did we sleep? We were asking him about his family connections, which are distinguished right. in respect of acting. Well, my, yeah, my father was, uh, was an actor, Jim Hutton, James Hutton. And uh, as far as him having an opinion about whether I should or should not be an actor, he didn't really have one. Once I started doing it, he encouraged it. And he actually asked me to go on the road with him uh, uh, to play uh, Harvey. Uh, he was playing Harvey and I was, I, I forget the name of the character, but it's the cab driver that comes in at the very end yeah. that asks for the tip. Mm -hmm. uh, and he used to play around with me and give me hundred dollar bills on stage, and, which worked. <laughs> uh, because I would just be panicked and not know what to do. Uh, and of course he'd ask for it back. <laughs> But that was, uh, that was great because he, he, I remember he did this thing where we would drive to the theater and he would say, uh, he said, okay, the first day we went to the theater, he'd say, okay, from this moment on, uh, we're just two people working and I'm going to go where I have to go and you have to go where, you know, th th that's it. You have a job to do, I have a job to do. So don't be offended if, if I'm not going to talk to you. I have to do this, I have to do that. So he established right away that, um, uh, you know, an actor can be, needs to be selfish sometimes and, and can't uh, always... Um, anyway, so that, that was something I remember that he did. <laughs> yeah. Cut me off, in other words. 
famous case of Buster Keaton as a little clown, three and four years old in the old days on the stage when his father used him as a prop and used to hurl him out uh, up in the air, knock him around, hit him with brooms and do everything else. And, and in the Haven once, at Yale, Yale students were mocking the father and the father picked up little Buster at the age of three or four and hurled him into the audience right into the face of a Yale undergraduate and broke his his teeth all over the oh my goodness. And Buster thought that was what life was supposed to be like. That's how, that's, that's how, that's how he grew up. He forgave his father for everything. Oh, no, awful. A less pleasant story than yours. <laughs> <laughs> was your mother an actress? No, no. She worked here for a while. Uh, she, she was an apprentice or an intern to uh, Theone Aldridge uh, at some point. And and I think that's how she met my father. I should know this. <laughs> but uh, she doesn't talk about it because I think she wanted to continue it, and uh, she never did. What was her name? Uh, at the time, Marilyn Poole. You should know Poole. this, too. Yeah, yeah, very important. I believe it was Marilyn Poole. <laughs> no, it was Marilyn <laughs> Stephanie, what about your family? Oh, gosh. My great-grandfather, Alexander Zimbalist, was a conductor in the town of Rostov in Russia. My grandfather, Ephraim Zimbalist, was a violinist. My grandmother was Alma Gluck, um, concert singer, uh, opera singer. My aunt is Marcia Davenport, a writer. My father's Ephraim Jeez. Zimbalist. And my sister is Nancy, who uh, organizes all the Virginia Slims tennis tournaments and stuff in Madison Square Garden. The book. <laughs> My brother um, Ephraim uh, is chairman of the board of a company called Korea Art Glass. It's a beautiful art glass, um, wonderful things. And uh, my sister-in-law designs it. And I have a niece, Christy, who just graduated Vassar. And, and there's Ephraim the fourth and Alexis and McNair, so there's a bunch of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we don't pool our resources. <laughs> what a wonderful resident company you could have. <laughs> and my pop, um, my grandfather used to smoke cigars, uh, and he always said that it, it didn't matter what you chose to do in life as long as you did it to the best of your ability. So he would have the same respect for the man that did an excellent job fixing his shoes, making his cigars as a fine, fine violinist. Um, so that was basically the attitude we all have for each other, which is pick whatever you want to do, anything, as long as you do it to the best of your ability. And it's, it's sort of important. So my pop said, though, when I was debating on whether to go to drama school or university, and I was faced with the decision at 17, he said, just know about acting that it's 99% rejection. And what that means is, it doesn't literally mean that you don't get 99 jobs out of 100, but the ones that you really want count for about 80 of them. <laughs> so it is 99%. He's right. He's absolutely right. How do you deal with rejection? Oh, gosh. Hmm? I sing. <laughs> I hate them. You never had it, did you? <laughs> what do you you do? never had it, did you? Oh, all the time. Oh, really? Oh, time. I'd love to hear about it. Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all the time. It's, um, the, uh, there's an abbreviated version, but the reason the baby dance came about was because I couldn't get hired, so I decided to have a play written for myself, and that's 
that's what the baby dance is. So oh, really? it was, I want to do a play, and I went to a friend of mine, and we pulled in Linda Pearl, and we threw ideas around. I call it spaghetti on the ceiling. And I threw in an idea about I wanted to see two women in disparate circumstances thrust into a crisis. And Linda was interested in uh, the idea of a woman who wanted to have a child and couldn't. And Jane Anderson, who was in the room, said, these ideas can be married. And she went off, and a month mm -hmm. later, we had the play. That's so that's how it came about. But it was from not getting employed right. that it came about. And then how did you get a producer? <clears throat> well, we produced it in you Los Angeles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of the rest is history. We sort of just mm -hmm. threw out the fishing lines, and they're still being thrown out. So, okay. yeah, it's a it's a it's a game of I'm sure we all know it's a game of rejection though. It's a, it's a joke. When I was was fascinated about you know when I was on the series, Remington Steel. I'd walk down the street. And it was, oh my God, oh, you're, you're my favorite actress. Oh, thank you very much. It was wonderful. And then not 10 months later, I'd be in a bank line. Could you spell that, please? Z is in zebra, I, M is in Mary. Well, M is in Mary, B is in, Bo not 10 months later. And we all know that. It's just up, you know that, up and down, and it happens to all of us. So somewhere in the middle of that, you have to find your identity and just have faith in it. You know. Teresa, how do you feel about that, and how do you handle it? Well, you, you do handle it. I mean, it, it goes on. I, what was it, about a year or two ago, uh, I was reading for a small part in a film that I just love, and I'm not going to be able to remember the name of it, but you, you'll know what it is. Uh, I should remember the name of the man who wrote the, the original book, but anyway, it, it starred... Uh, um, Robert De Niro and, and Robin Williams. And Awakening. 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 And I had read the book and loved it, and I loved the script. And I read for that role five times, always sort of at the last minute. Now, when I, they sent it to me originally for something else, and I said, uh, no, I don't want to do any of those, but I would love to play the mother, uh, if she could be an Irish mother. I, and I did what I call my New York Irish accent for them, and. Uh, they said, great, and then I got to read the first time, and I thought it was pretty awful, and I told my agents, forget it. And then they called me up again and said, and we want you to come in, uh, again at the last minute, come in to read with Mr. De Niro and work on your Bronx accent. I said, I don't have a Bronx <laughs> accent. <laughs> and it wasn't time to, I'd talked to somebody about uh, getting some help on it, but there wasn't time. And uh, I came in and did my New York Irish again, and mm -hmm. and again I told my agent, just forget about it. That's it. I mean, it. Uh, I shouldn't ever have read for it in the beginning. Anyway, this went on right up to testing for it in Brooklyn, and my dear friend Ruth Nelson got the role and was absolutely marvelous in it. And I knew when that I saw it that I would not have been as right as Ruth. And uh, you just face that. But if sometimes I usually know, I, I've turned down an awful lot of things because I say I know I'm not right. I can't do it. It isn't just that. Uh, you have to you have to feel a, a an inner sympathy with the the character, and uh, sometimes I don't, and, and uh, know that I would be false in it. And uh, I knew I could play. I knew I could play her from the inside, not necessarily from the outside. It happened to me once a long time ago when I was too old for a part and they sent me uh, 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 The Miracle Worker, 
and uh, they sent it to me for the mother, and I said, no, I've played that nice southern woman so many times, and I really don't have any desire to play her again, but I wish somebody would give me a part like Annie ten years ago. So we dissolved, they didn't get the person they wanted, and they came back to me, and I played it because I knew that I had the insides of Annie, even if I was too old for the outside, and it worked. Sure. That's wonderful. We're about to go to questions, and I would like to ask so many of them, myself, that we have a whole group of people here that want to ask you all questions, so we'll start right now. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is Michael Shapiro, and this is from Roy Tortrice. Um, in the homecoming now, what sort of experience is it being redirected in a part that you've already played by a new director, and how are you playing it differently? Uh, well, I've never played the part before. Oh. No, I wasn't in the original production. Okay. Um, so, I'm, you know, it's, it's <coughs> totally fresh for me. Um, I think I know this character. Um, I, I, I haven't had wonderful reviews. In fact, some delightful gentleman said I look like Santa Claus at the bar. Uh, uh, but I, I don't think uh, he must have had a very peculiar childhood <laughs> if his Santa Claus behaved like Max behaves. But, uh, no, I, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed tremendously because I've drawn on, on a great deal of my own experiences from, from life. I, I was on the periphery of uh, a film once in which uh, I met the Cray brothers and all those people. Max says, the character I play, which gives you some clue to his background, he does say, um, talking about him and his friend McGregor, he says, uh, we were the two of the worst hated men in the West End of London. He said, I'll tell you, I've still got the scars. He said, we walk into a place, the whole room would stand up and make way for us to pass. You never heard such silence. This man was in the protection racket, you know, in his youth. So I, I've drawn on a great deal of, of that experience because I, I was kind of not actually in it, but on the periphery of it at one time during research for a film with Mick Jagger called Performance. Um, I've enjoyed doing it tremendously. Um, perhaps enjoy is the wrong word. It's, it's a very draining experience to play this monster, and I do believe the man is a monster. But I uh, know, to go back to your original question, I haven't played it before, but I'm enjoying It's an experience this time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Dorothy Gann, and this question is for Miss Wright. Um, you've had such a long and illustrious career in the theater. Can you tell us what the biggest change has been since the beginning of career to how theater is today? Well, I think uh, to the great detriment of theater, uh, theaters are getting bigger all the time. The little ones are being knocked down, and these big monsters come in, and as you mentioned, there are certain theaters that the human voice cannot be heard in. I mean, generally speaking, I don't think there's a problem in, in projection. If you're talking to a person next to you, you speak one way. If you're talking to somebody in the back of the room, you naturally have to reach them. But when you are in a theater of monstrous size and no way to reach it except by the mic, and if that's going to be our future theater, it just seems to me that it's the end of theaters we've known it. And I just hope to God that somebody goes on uh, building smaller theaters and finding a way to finance them. And uh, God knows how that can be done except by 
corporate financing, if anybody has any ideas on that. It's <laughs> a very good idea. Hi, my name is Dennis Fury, and my question is for Mr. Hutton. Uh, you're very well known from your film work. I was wondering, does this interfere with your ability to disappear into a part on stage, at least from the audience point of view? Are you aware of that? I don't, <clears throat> I don't know from the audience point of view, but for myself, no. If, if, if I've come close to um, doing my job, then absolutely not. Um. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Phoebe McBride. I'm an actress. And I'd like to ask you, did you make it in theater by studying acting or by getting an agent? Cool. <laughs> 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 Oh, I, don't, I mean it in a kind way. I didn't mean yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Please, some advice. For... Yeah, well, I think that's, if you, you want to start. I, it's, it's a bit of both. Um, uh, getting an agent can be just as hard. It's harder than uh, finding a good teacher to study acting from. But I think they're both important, um, a good agent. I mean, you can be with a huge, great agency, but if no one's behind you making sure that you're getting out for those jobs, you might as well not be there. Um, so, I mean, they're both very important because you, you definitely need, once you do get in the door, you need, you need your craft to back you up once you're in there so you know what you're doing once you're in there. So they're, they're pretty both important. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting. Would you take it around the camera? What about yeah. you? Um, well, I, I got my first agent from um, the League auditions, from the League of Professional Theater Training Schools. I went to a, one of the schools. It's, it's not... It doesn't exist anymore, but um, the theater uh, schools would have hold auditions, and all the agents and casting directors in New York and some from California would come and and watch. So that's how I I, I got my first agent was from having been to a conservatory, and and I would I really would never have wanted to ever go on any sort of theater audition without having studied. I, I just don't. Well, I think it really has pretty much been answered, and, and the only other thing is almost a little bit like what you've done uh, as produced, but young people now more and more are getting together and forming their own little companies. How they manage to do it, I mean, they don't make enough to pay their car fare to where they're going. They have to have other jobs, but they are so dedicated to this that they they do meet and they put on plays and they have readings, mostly readings because they can't afford and then people do get to see them and out of that uh, sometimes they'll get a job offer and it is almost today since there's there are some few plays being done that aren't musicals uh, that's what actors have to do and it would be good to work with a group of friends that you know uh, get together and just work because at least you're doing something and then if you get it on enough that you can find a place uh, Manhattan uh, uh, Apartments at Plaza. What is it? Manhattan <laughs> Plaza. Um, they have a free space. I mean, people just have to sign up for it, and you go in there the and you invite people to see it. Just, which is just very keep good. working. Yes, work at your mm -hmm. trade, no matter where yes. it is. My name is Susan Pingleton, and my question is for the panel. I was listening to Mr. Battle say that um, he had been pursued for a part that he was not particularly interested in at the time. Um, but I wanted to know, how do you uh, handle it when you want to part very, very badly and you don't get it? 
<laughs> I cry. See these wrinkles here? <laughs> I cry. <laughs> Is there anything you can do in, in, in the audition process? Do you mean to go back again and say, look, give me another chance? Yes, basically. You, this, I mean, you know, you have to, I mean, there's a lot of times there's been parts that I've really wanted and parts where I, I know I'm right for and I know I could do it and have a, be really great at. And we'll go in and give a good audition and I'm just not right for it. Maybe I'm not, a lot of it is not always necessarily your craft. A lot of it, you may not look the right part. Physical Or time. you may not match up with this person, or they had someone much younger in mind that just came up. I wanted to go in convincing them. I can play that age, I can play younger, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and going in there, you know, finally getting the audition, and uh, uh, someone had an idea of me because I've done theater for a long time, a lot of people think I'm much older than I am, that I was way too old for this part. And I had to yeah. fight just to get an audition to get, the, get in. Didn't get the part, but I wanted the part because it was a great role. Have you ever had to fight your agent to submit you for something yeah, you knew you were right for? Yeah, that's what I'm talking I had to fight my agent. Might leave him too. No, but I had to, <laughs> <laughs> I had to fight my agent to get them in to see me. Although mm -hmm. she didn't, the casting director didn't, thought I was too old. But it was good that I went in because when she did meet me, she realized I wasn't as old as I was and I wasn't necessarily right for that part because of the age. But there was other things that, you know, that she wants to see me for. But so, I mean, a lot of times it doesn't work out one way to work out another way. So, it, you know. Great. Thanks. Yeah, very good. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Ravel and my question is for the panel at large. Um, I'm curious how you make an adjustment in preparation when you're preparing for a television series character as versus a theatrical character? Well, you want to start with that because you've done Yes, unfortunately, I think the, the, problem, the thing I enjoy most about theatre is the rehearsal period when one has an opportunity to create a character and hopefully uh, by the time the first night comes around you know you're, you're rushing along the tunnel towards meeting a chap you've never met before hopefully it doesn't happen that way you have to explore the character and run it for several weeks possibly months before you can get everything you can out of the character and feel that you've got a very full character there now that doesn't happen too much in television and films unfortunately you know you're, you're suddenly introduced to someone at seven o'clock in the morning and they say jump into bed you've got this love scene you know? At least that used to happen to me in my youth, doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> but um, you know what I mean, you, you, you don't rehearse things. I mean, well, maybe you rehearse it once or twice for the camera and then do it. Occasionally, um, I did a film last year with Buck Henry, which we did rehearse for three weeks before we did it, but then that was because it was an adaptation of a stage play. The thing that, um, as for performance, on, on film compared, it's, it's just a question of projection really, you know, I mean, I'm talking to you and you're 10 feet away and I'm talking this loud, but if I were whispering or, or quite close to you, I wouldn't be projecting that much. It's, it's just, you know, the difference between trying to get to the back of the dress circle and projecting. So your, your preparation before in building the character is the same basically for, for the Well, as I say in television, there's not much, and film, there's not too much preparation for, 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 for character unless you're in one of those unique situations with a film where they do rehearse for a few weeks beforehand. But invariably, you don't. You're I think Stephanie wants to get in on that. Oh, I didn't say I enjoy his back very much. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about doing a television series is, if you're a regular on it, is that it's not unlike theater because you're playing the same character. 
the, the scripts change, but you have the opportunity to, to make it grow and grow and grow. Sure. And, so, and I've always felt about, I don't know about you, Tim, but I've always felt that, that in the theater is where you, you take several steps up in terms of what you know about acting. And in film is where you go practice it. You yeah. take a few steps up in the theater, and then you go on film and you go, oh, I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do that. And then you go back to the theater and you go several steps up again. It's seem and the best way for we actors, us actors, is to go back and forth. It seems to be the best way. I think you were talking about developing the character, though. It just happens before you get to either the, the uh, camera or the audience. I think he, developing the character, for me, is the same. I mean, uh, a lot of it you, you end up doing on your own so much in, in doing film and television. As on theater, you may do in the rehearsal room with everyone else, you, may, you have the luxury of developing it right there with everyone I else. I that pretty That's much. Where, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, my Hello. name is Christine Butler, and I have a question for Ms. Similist. Um, you've been associated with the baby dance for about two years now. Have you been working on other projects along at the same time? And if so, is it difficult to pick up again uh, when, you, when you come back to the baby dance? It's a curious thing. I, I, I supplement my, I, I keep myself in silk, I, I call it. No, it's a joke. Um, <laughs> doing television. Uh, so I did a uh, television movie with Jessica Tandy in, the, in June that will be out in December. And another one with Gregory Harrison and Kevin Conway. Um, we go down, uh, let's say we won't, we won't be at Long Wharf and then we'll have four months off or five months off and every time we come back to this play, all of us have grown several paces. We don't know why, it's a curious thing about this play and it happens every time we stop doing the baby dance, we all rush around, do other things. We come back to it and it's like, oh, and it's a different play every time. Every time it's a different play. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my, I'm Roz Dunn, I'm a talk show host, and my question is for Brendan Gill. What material do you feel is the most lacking in theater today? The material that these two plays that we've been talking about today have, which is, which is a serious confrontation with the realities of life and finding the means of turning those tragic events that we are all familiar with into works of art. And, and, and in both of these cases, this is what has taken place. And it's a, it's, it's a thrilling thing that the opportunity continues to exist both for the playwrights and the actors to have it. We have more than enough of, that, of the professional skills, and, 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 uh, but the willingness to take a chance on confronting all that is, is what I find the most necessary thing for all of us. Do you ever think something like that could be worked into a miniature musical? <laughs> oh, uh, absolutely. 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 I'd like to see it too. We Thank you. We have time for just one more question. My name is Ernie Dickey, and my question is for Miss Parker. And you made your film debut with a longtime companion, companion, which was written by uh, Craig Lucas, who also wrote Prelude to a Kiss. Uh -huh. uh, which part came first, and um, which do you prefer, film or stage? Um, actually, I did one film before that called Signs of Life. Um, I did the play of Prelude to a Kiss in Berkeley, and then they asked me to be in the movie, and I, I agreed to do it without having even read the script, because I knew the subject matter, and I knew that they would really deal with it beautifully, which I think they did, and um, 
So that came first. And um, as far as stage or film, I, I prefer stage. Absolutely. No question. I'm sorry, but once more I find myself interrupting and, and uh, saying that we haven't enough time, and there really isn't enough time. Just about when we're ready to get into all the problems and all the rewards as well of working in the theater, I have to bring it to a close. This is the American Theater Wing seminar on working in the theater, and it's coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. New York City, where the heart of the theater is and where everything that's good goes out, and when everything that's good out comes in. And I am delighted to say that uh, we can call on the kind of people that we do because the American Theater Wing has the reputation that it has. And as president of the American Theater Wing, I hope that I can continue doing the things that we do. It's a year-round program. And we do these seminars on the performance, on the play script, director, and on the production. And sets of the seminars are sent out to universities across the country for use in their classrooms. So thank you very much for coming. And thank you, the panel, for being so very constructive and giving so much of your time on what it is to work in the theater. Thank you, indeed. Martha, that is the